Good afternoon and welcome. Uh, we're, we're waiting for some people to join us in this webinar. We'll get started in about one minute, so please be patient. Thank you. Good afternoon. I'm Sandra Peart, Dean of the Jepson School of Leadership Studies. And it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this event sponsored by the Gary L. McDowell Institute, along with our colleagues in alumni relations. I want to begin by acknowledging Gary's presence at this webinar and recognizing his extraordinary influence at the Jepson School. In short, Gary's creativity, his collegiality, and his drive are why we created the Institute in his honor, an institute dedicated, as is Gary, to the principles of free inquiry, thoughtful deliberation, and rigorous discussion of classical texts and issues in political economy. As a historian of economics who works on classical texts, I have a special affinity for this institute and I'm grateful for all that Gary McDowell and the institute's current co-directors, professors Dan Palzolo and Terry Price have done to make it come to fruition. I want also to thank the Thomas W. Smith Foundation for financial support that has made it possible for us to do this event as well as many others over the years. And it's now my pleasure to introduce the moderator for today's event, who will in turn introduce our guest speaker. Nikki Tynan is an economist with special interests in economic history and the history of economic ideas. Those are two distinct fields in economics. She graduated from the University of York with a BA in economics, and then went on to the London School of Economics to obtain her master's degree in government, political philosophy, Nikki then entered the PhD program at George Mason, uh, George Mason University, where she earned her PhD in economics. This is where I first met Nikki. She's presently an associate professor of economics at Dickinson College and serves as book review editor for essays in economic history and business history. Nikki's scholarship focuses on public health and water infrastructure in England and Wales especially in London during the long 19th century, we share an interest in John Stuart Mill. In addition, she has written on the influence of Friedrich Hayek uh, and a very important Nobel laureate economist of the 20th century on Margaret Thatcher and Sir Waldron Smithers. Nikki is one of those rare historical economists whose work spans both the practical and the theoretical. She's also my friend. Please join me in virtually welcoming Nikki Tynan to our event. Thank you. Thank you, Sandy, for that uh, very nice introduction. And it is now my pleasure in turn to welcome uh, our speaker and guest for today, uh, Lord Moore of Etchingham in East Sussex. Uh, Lord Moore uh, was educated at Eton College and then went on to study at Trinity College at Cambridge University, where he uh, graduated with a master's in history, uh, MA honors, I should uh, add as well. Uh, 
Lord Moore spent a lot of his uh, career working for uh, the Telegraph, the Daily Telegraph and Sunday Telegraph, uh, where he was on the editorial staff uh, before going on to become deputy editor at the Daily Telegraph and then editor of both the Sunday and Daily Telegraph uh, with a stint at the Spectator as editor of the Spectator uh, for a period uh, between eight, 1984 and 1990. Uh, he took over as chairman of the think tank in the UK Policy Exchange in 2005 uh, and continued in that role until 2011. I should note that he remains a, a weekly columnist for The Telegraph and Spectator and a consulting editor for The Telegraph Group. Uh, Lord Moore spent many years, 15, uh, at least of his life working on uh, the work we're going to focus on today, uh, which is becoming the authorized biographer of Margaret Thatcher's, uh, the three volumes of Margaret Thatcher's biography. I uh, note that I, when uh, Charles Moore started out this endeavor, my understanding is this was imagined as a one volume project, but uh, clearly the details of Margaret Thatcher's life uh, were impossible to write in one volume. So uh, the first volume focuses on uh, Margaret Thatcher's early years, uh, Margaret Thatcher not for turning. Uh, volume two focuses on those core years of being in power as a prime minister of the UK, uh, everything she wants. And then the final volume focuses on those later years of Margaret Thatcher's life, herself alone. And those uh, books are behind me now. Um, so as we uh, transition and uh, learn more from uh, Charles Moore about uh, Margaret Thatcher's life, I wanted to start just by asking, how did you come to be uh, the authorized biographer for Margaret Thatcher's life. And if you could tell us what were your favorite parts of this process, what were some of the challenges? Well, thank you, Nikki. And perhaps I should first of all say how delighted I am. I've long been invited to the University of Richmond and to the Institute, and I've, I've hopelessly failed to make it for one reason or another. And uh, But it's lovely to make it um, virtually, if sadly not uh, actually. And I just want to give my thanks to Gary McDowell in particular, um, who's always had such an interest and in, uh, been so important in the close interest and study of the United States in Britain and bringing a lot of British things, particularly to do with Margaret Thatcher, to the United States. And uh, I think that's a you know he's been the special relationship uh, embodied in one person, and um, and uh, it's uh, he, he's done great work. So thank you, Gary. Um, to your question, uh, what happened was that. Uh, Margaret Thatcher uh, gave all her papers. She, she was a graduate of Oxford University. And you may know that when she was prime minister, Oxford University refused her an honorary degree um, for political reasons, which upset her very deeply. You know, they produced the first woman prime minister and now they wouldn't give her an honorary degree. It seemed a very, very strange decision. So when she came to, she left office and she was wondering where to give her all the government papers you take with you when you're prime minister she thought hmm i think i'll give them to cambridge which is oxford's great rival and uh, <laughs> and so she did and um they're in churchill college cambridge with winston churchill's papers and when all that happened she thought she was advised somebody's going to write your biography lady thatcher so why don't before all these papers are released to the public under the disclosure rules 
So why don't you invite someone with whom you have a reasonable relationship to get going on it? And that person can have access. And she very kindly chose me. This was in 1997. Um, and I don't really know why, um, except that in those days I was moderately young and she knew it would take a long time. Um, but she did very kindly choose me. And what she did, the way it worked was she turned the key in the lock for me because she said, you can have access to all my papers. I will invite all my family and close friends to talk to you. I will tell all the civil servants who haven't been allowed to talk in the past that they should be free to talk. And I will ask the cabinet secretary of, of the government to open up the government papers so that you can see them before they're released as well. So basically she said, you can see everything. And she also said um, that the book should not be published in my Margaret Thatcher's lifetime. And I, Margaret Thatcher, should not be allowed to read it. And that's really important because uh, otherwise, you know, frankly, everybody's terrified of Margaret Thatcher. So they didn't, wouldn't have dared to tell me things if they thought she'd read it. And also, perhaps more significantly, um, people would not have thought that it was a true account because they would have thought I was just saying I, was, I would be the ventriloquist dummy. I would just be saying what she wanted. Um, and uh, so by stipulating this condition, which I would have had to ask for if she hadn't stipulated it, she gave, did me a really big favor because it could be proper history. And you said, uh, what do I, what were the good bits and the bad bits? Well, I mean, there aren't, there aren't exactly bad bits, but, or there weren't, but except that it's so much work, it's an unbelievable amount of work because she was prime minister for longer than any British prime minister since the 19th century. And she was the hardest working British prime minister ever. Um, and she worked sort of six and a half days a week for the whole 11 and a half years she was in office. Um, and it's just a stupefying, and she loved the detail, and she loved the big picture and the detail, which is rather unusual. And she just was at it all the time. And so the, the, the volume of material is stupefying. And the other thing which wasn't bad, but was difficult was dealing with her um, for interviews. She readily gave the interviews and we had a good personal relationship, but she didn't really understand what a historical interview was. So in her view, her, her mental picture of an interview was like um, being on television during a campaign. You have to win and, uh, <laughs> and you have to squash your interviewer if, she does, if you don't like the way the interview is going. So um, I would sort of ask a very neutral question, just trying to ascertain facts about something or other, you know, perhaps her early life or whatever it might be. And if she didn't like it, she'd say things like, you only say that because you're a socialist or something like that. <laughs> which I'm not, by the way, but um, and, um, and, uh, uh, so you had to sort of ride the waves of Mrs. Thatcher. And she, it's well known that her mental powers declined in, in her later years. This wasn't really true when I was first interviewing her, but it was, it was true nevertheless that she had a poor historical memory. She had a brilliant memory for facts and details of policies and things like that. But if you tried to get her to remember a sequence of events in the past, she was never any good at that. And I find most politicians aren't because they're so busy doing what they're doing that they don't sort of retain the overall picture. So if I'd written this book just from talking to Margaret Thatcher, it would, to be honest, be pretty poor history. <laughs> Fascinating always to talk to her because her character comes so, through so strongly, her beliefs come through so strongly, some striking judgment she makes. But in terms of trying to get the overall picture, you need the oral, very broad range of oral witnesses, 600 people interviewed, and you need to look at all the paper. 
were there any moments where you were able to bring something you'd some information you'd gained from speaking to somebody else from interviewing them or from the record that sort of triggered yes. a memory yes that's a good question and, it, and i managed this on a particularly delicate subject one thing in her early life one thing that mrs Thatcher had always said was that she had no boyfriends before Dennis, who, whom she married. And she was a pretty truthful lady, but in fact, this particular point was absolutely untrue. And, uh, <laughs> and I think I understand it because in a woman of her generation, it could be compromising to talk about previous boyfriends. It was something very, very private. And um, so I don't blame her for that, but it was in fact quite untrue. So I discovered that in 1951, uh, sorry, 1950, when uh, Dennis was on the scene, but things weren't quite decided. She basically had three boyfriends at the same time and she was trying to make up her mind between them. And eventually she chose Dennis. And there was another, one of them was a pretty serious one, a much older doctor who was an interesting man who invented the iron lung in Britain. And, um, and I discovered this and I, so I thought, I'll have to put it to her. What do I say? Um, how do, you know, and um, I was very sort of found it very difficult and embarrassing, but in the end I sort of said, um, uh, I, I mentioned his name and I sort of brought it up in slightly sideways. And I said, um, I think, um, you know, it might've been possible that you were going to marry him even. And, and she said, well, yes, it might. And, um, and uh, but he was really too old. He was twice her age. Uh, so he was 48 when she was 24. Um, and there I'd sort of got there. Um, and, and she, had to admit it. I didn't sort of get her in a corner and say, come on, tell me, you've got to tell me, but I, do you see what I mean? And, it, and so I actually elicited the necessary, um, necessary information. Oh, that's excellent. Thank you. Uh, well, one thing you mentioned just now, and it comes out in the books as well, is that uh, she wasn't very good at reflecting on the past. You know, she was very much someone who moved forward. Uh, but despite that, is there anything that you think she considered her greatest achievement? So by the time you were interviewing her, were there, was there something she was really proud of? Yes, there were a lot of things. Um, not one single thing, but a lot of things which were related. I'll just tell you a story because it, it also shows her gift for encapsulating things, which we, she was very good at in a clear way. One time back in 1997, when she just asked me to do the book, we were staying in the country, English countryside with a friend and she was there. Um, and our son who was then seven came into the room while I was sitting with her after lunch. And I didn't think he really knew who she was, but he suddenly said to her, um, did you like being prime minister? So she said, um, well, yes, we had the chance to make important decisions and improve the life of our country. So yes, we liked it very much. She always said we, um, and, um, he said, oh, well, did you make some good laws then? And she said, yes, we did. We made Britain strong in defence. We reduced the power of the trade unions and we cut taxes so that if people can keep more of what they earn, they earn more. And at this point, the interview went downhill a bit because my son said, then said, so did you get very rich? <laughs> no, we did not, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, this was this was her. She was encapsulating. So she got defence, which is sort of really the Cold War, and all of that vitally important. And and she got the terrible power in those days of the of the, what you would call the labour unions in the United States. And she got all the points about e e economy and um, tax. 
And so she'd absolutely encapsulate it. And if she could explain it to a seven-year-old, you know, she she was always on message. She had the she had the ability to preach uh, to the great and the small. That's like well, is there anything? Uh, it sounds like she's covered sort of the three key three key areas there. But is there anything that you consider her one thing that should be added to that list that she didn't include? Yes, um, and she wouldn't have included it because she always felt it was better to be talked about by others. It was the fact that she was the one and only woman in the first, which was the most, the more I looked at it, it's a very obvious point, but sometimes the obvious point is the key one. Um, the more I looked at it, the more incredible it was that she succeeded to be, to become the leader of the Conservative Party in that era as a woman, and that she succeeded as a prime minister and that she won every single general election, three general elections, uh, as the first woman prime minister. You know, the, the, the feeling that it couldn't happen, the prejudice against it, the difficulty of getting women votes without alienating male votes and vice versa, um, the danger of being pigeonholed as a woman and confined to women's subjects, um, the sort of satire and attack she received and the misogyny, um, the need to make sure you're taken seriously, incredible, the family pressures, incredible number of difficulties she had to overcome. And the way she did that was not to make special pleading for women um, and not to concentrate on so-called women's issues. Her attitude was, I want to beat the men on their own ground. So I don't want to just talk about things that we know women care about, like health, though she was interested in that, and education, which she was very interested in. She thinks, thought to herself, what do men like? They like money, war, and power. So that's what I'm going to conquer. I'm going to understand everything about the economy. I'm going to understand everything about defense. And I'm going to stand, understand everything about global diplomacy. And I'm going to beat them at it. And she did. And, and um, this, I think, was a very carefully worked out, but always unstated way of proceeding. And it transformed the way particularly in economics, that, politic, that political conversation, because she turned political conversation into a woman's idea of reality and the household budget and all that sort of thing. And she made complicated economics very, very direct and clear. And she said, don't believe the men, they've blinded you with jargon. I can tell you what it's like. Women can tell you what it's like. Did that, and I get the sense that that resistance um... Or that you know overcoming that barrier of being the first woman in this position wasn't just in terms of the electorate but that was also within the party itself did that yes. did that ever Very, diminish it did diminish but it was always there and i think it had an effect in bringing her down actually because i think the actual sort of conspiracy that brought her down in 1990 was the sort of thing that a male party can do and that it's a female leader couldn't quite understand because she wasn't part of the club. And in those days, the House of Commons was still very male and very clubby. And they could sort of have their plots in dinners and bars and things where she never had anything to do with. And I think um, actually that did isolate her. She was rather isolated towards the end of her time in office, partly she'd been there too long, she'd become somewhat arrogant, but also um, she never was part of the male club. She was very conscious of that. And so when it came to bringing her down, they knew how to do it. And they were fed up with her partly because they considered her to be a bossy woman and they were fed up with being bossed around by a woman. Interesting. Um, 
but I think she managed to build, so I'm going to pivot a little bit, you mentioned one of her policies was the Cold War. Uh, and I think on the positive side, she had some strong relationships or built relationships with uh, male leaders overseas. Yeah. Uh, and I, Mikhail Gorbachev once said that she really contributed to the end of the Cold War. Um, what do you think was her role? Uh, well, first of all, you're quite right to raise the point about her relationships with male leaders, because though she was a strong, she didn't believe in the equality of the sexes. She believed in the superiority of women, but she, um, but she, um, but uh, actually preferred the company of men. So, so there's a sort of chemistry between world leaders and her was very important. And if it was poor, it had very unhappy results, as with Chancellor Kohl in Germany, who she didn't like. But if she liked men, and she fancied a certain type of man, a sort of good-looking man with a smart suit and um, a good manner, what she called good bearing. So she loved President Reagan, for example. She thought he was absolutely, I mean, they had ideological affinities as well, but she actually really, really liked him, enjoyed his company. And similarly with Gorbachev, she was the first important Western leader to meet Gorbachev. Gorbachev was not even the leader at that point, but she invited him to check as her country residence. And they had a tremendous argument about communist versus capitalist sort of thing, freedom, um, uh, state control versus freedom. So, and though they didn't agree about anything, they, both of them enjoyed it. It was very frank. And it was almost like two students who were, you know, were very excited by ideas and sort of whacking them back and forth. It went on way over schedule and argue, argue, argue. And um, it established a sort of trust in a curious way. This is December, 1984. And she got there first and it was she that brought the idea of Gorbachev to Reagan. She flew to Camp David less than a week later and talked to him about it. Um, and the American administration was much more skeptical than she was at that point. And she did definitely help to lead, bargain from a position, to get the West to bargain from a position of strength because she and Reagan had brought the cruise, Pershing and cruise missiles into Europe at the beginning of the eighties against a lot of popular opposition. Once they'd done that, they were, confident that they were back on top of the arms race and that they could then uh, move towards a more peaceful future. And that's what they did. And she was the, obviously Reagan was ultimately much more important than her in this, but because of the relative power uh, values, but she was the first and he trusted her. They, they were very close in that way. The trust was very good. So even when they had terrific disagreements, him basically wanting to rid the world of nuclear weapons and she basically believing in the deterrent theory of nuclear weapons and therefore not wanting to rid the world of them. Despite that major disagreement, they actually worked very, very successfully together towards this great end of liberating the Eastern Bloc and winning the Cold War without violence. Um, and so I think she did, was the major contributor to it uh, in Europe except at the very end when she fell out, this was after Reagan's time, and she fell out somewhat with George Bush and very much with Helmut Kohl about German reunification, which scared her. She was frightened of German power, and she also feared that German reunification, if it happened too quickly, would bring the hardliners back to power in the Soviet Union and would cause a um, violent reaction. And this meant, I mean, her fears were, quite reasonable fears, but they were expressed in too violent a form, too, too fierce a form. And she lost allies about that. And um, what it meant was that at the very end of the Cold War, she was less important than, than she'd been up to that point. 
Um, but I think it, the contribution remains immensely important. And she, she and Reagan were unique among Western leaders in reaching out to the people of the Eastern Bloc as well as to the leaders of the Eastern Bloc. So people in Poland, for example, would really look to Margaret Thatcher. She had the most fantastically uh, successful visit there in 1988. Huge, enormous crowds, which Polish TV refused to film um, because uh, she, she'd always reached to them in the communication saying, we want you to be free. And actually very, very popular in, in Russia as well. Huge, huge crowds in Moscow and in other parts of the Soviet Union. So it was very transformative. I had a fire truck go by, so I muted it. Do you think her strength that seemed to be very effective in Poland and in Russia was seen very differently than it was seen domestically? Well, it was certainly more popular in Poland and Russia than it was, at least in some of her time as prime minister. I mean, um, I think the thing about Margaret Thatcher in Britain and her popularity was that she was always very popular and always very unpopular, both at the same time, because um, she had a very polarizing effect. So she had a very strong following, but she had a very strong enemies. And sometimes if things were going badly, particularly towards the end, people would move more into the enemy camp, not that they'd necessarily become enemies, but that they thought we've had enough of this, enough, let's stop shouting, let's be more peaceful. Um, and, but, but the results speak for themselves because she did, as I say, win all three general elections and she won them big because she, she knew how to keep the Labour Party on the floor um, and to divide it to some extent. Um, and she knew that people, even if they didn't particularly like her style, could see that she was a proper leader. So, so they had a faith in her in economic matters and in defending Britain's interests and in Cold War issues. And that was more than enough to carry her through for this exceptionally long period. Yeah. You mentioned uh, her relationship with Reagan as being something that had started really prior to the, either of them being at the pinnacle of their power and that being really important. Um, could you say a little bit more about the extent to which that relationship either influenced their actual policies or at least the way they presented their policies outside of a private conversation? Yes, thank you. Well, as I say I, I, before, I think it, I've shown a little bit about how, what it had, had to do with dealing with the Eastern Bloc, but I think more broadly, you're right to emphasize the fact that they knew one another before they had power. They first met in um, early 1975. She'd just become leader and he was in the wilderness um, uh, looking for the nomination, which he didn't get in, for 1976. And they got on incredibly well and they found they agreed about all these freedom issues, economic freedom issues and global freedom issues about, they were rare critics at the time of what was called detente, you know, with um, the, the attempt to get close to the Soviet Union which she didn't like if we did it from a weak position because it meant we were just going to roll over to Soviet adventurism. And this is why she was called the Iron Lady. That's what the Russians call her. They meant it as an insult and she eventually grabbed it and used it as a term of praise. Um, and um, she and Reagan therefore knew when they came into office, she first, him second, in, in chronologically, that um, they were on the same page and they immediately communicated with, with one another 
when he rang her to congratulate her in 1979, number 10 Downing Street wouldn't put him through because he, they hadn't heard of him. But, um, uh, but um, luckily she got him a few days later and um, he wasn't offended. Um, uh, and um, they kept saying to one another in these early conversations, uh, I think one, when he, once he'd become president, we'll lend strength to one another. That was one of the first things they agreed on the, on the telephone in the, the first conversation, I think. Um, also, I think they had complementary temperaments. Um, he was a, um, very sunny and relaxed um, and at ease, and she liked that, but she was not completely unlike that herself. She was very tense, very active, very, very super hard working, um, and he liked that. He, he thought she was a bit of a sort of classic English lady uh, with lovely manners and um, all that. Um, and she thought he was a classic um, sort of uh, dashing American, sort of bit of the cowboy in him. Um, and, um, and they fulfilled in the mind of the other, the, their national archetypes. And they complemented one another. So she knew the detail much better than he did, much, much better. And sometimes she would privately complain, he doesn't know anything about this, you know, she'd say, um, uh, but he would have the sort of the long view about what, what really mattered compared with what didn't and so on. And um, uh, it, it was a good combination, her being not, not more right wing than him, that wouldn't be right, but sort of tougher in his in demeanor and him being more charming and easy. And um, I think it gave people in the Western world an idea that conservatism is quite a rich mixture um, uh, and also something you can be proud of it's not all sort of bitter and horrible and reactionary. It's, it's something about freedom and national pride and civilization and opportunity. And I think that, that worked very well. And they were both very good at, in their different ways at the rhetoric of that. How many times do you think that their relationship was tested? Yes, there certainly were because there were times when they really disagreed something about it about something and it had practical consequences or the interests of the United States were different from those of Britain. The classic example is the Falklands invasion, the invasion of the Falkland Islands by Argentina in 1982, where really in many ways, American interests seemed to lie more with um, good relations with South America at that point. And you know, in the American mind, a lot of American minds, who cares about the Falkland Islands? Um, but Mrs. Satch, and, and so the Reagan government was a little bit not sure where to go on this and elements in the State Department and elsewhere um, and Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, United Nations ambassador, were very pro-South American. What to do? And Mrs. Thatcher luckily had was able to call in her contacts in the administration and the two closest most important people were Caspar Weinberger at Defence, who was secretly shoveling us out a lot of kit out of the back door to help our forces and President Reagan himself, who though he was more um, unsure about the issue, was definitely her friend. And she was able to put pressure on him about that. And by a very, very skillful uh, operating that pressure, she got Americans to come to American administration to come down on the British side in time for Britain to reconquer the Falklands. It was quite a narrow, very dangerous military operation and a very diff difficult diplomatic one. That worked. One that was much more that didn't work and caused a lot of ill feeling was when the United States invaded the Caribbean island of Grenada, which um, to get rid of the Marxist regime. Now, of course, Mrs. Thatcher had no 
problem about getting rid of the Marxist regime, but she hated not being told. And she felt insulted because um, uh, Grenada was part of the Commonwealth and therefore the queen, our queen, was queen of Grenada. And so it's extremely difficult for the United States to be attacking a country of which the queen, Queen Elizabeth II is queen. And, and not to tell Mrs. Atchery who was doing it before he did, it was more than she could stand. So there was a very big bust up about it. And actually relations were definitely soured for quite a, quite a definite period of time. I can't remember exactly how long, but in the end, some of her friends here said, actually, you've said enough complaint about this now, Margaret. Um, you made your point, let's get back to normal relations. And, and that did happen. But it showed that um, there could be a real tension. And the final most important one, which again worked out all right, was at the Reykjavik summit in 1987, <coughs> um, uh, gosh, is it 86 or 87? Gosh, I can't remember, I'm so sorry. Um, 87, I think. When, um, uh, I'm conscious that Ken Edelman, I believe is, uh, who wrote a brilliant book about this is, uh, I think in the audience and he, he will be shocked but I can't remember the exact date. Um, Reagan, um, seemed to give away the shop on nuclear weapons with the meeting at, Re at Reykjavik with Gorbachev and with nobody else, no allies in the room and almost, no, almost literally nobody else in the room. And luckily for Mrs. Thatcher, the negotiations broke down over SDI, um, but she thought with a moment of total horror that he'd left the West defenseless in nuclear terms by the deal he was trying to do with Gorbachev. And she was horrified both about the issue and at the fact that she was not really, she was kept out of it. Um, and that again was a very nasty moment, but she reasserted the importance of the deterrence when she went to see Reagan in Camp David. And again, the strength of the personal relationship worked and all this was sort of reassembled in a satisfactory manner um, a little bit later. But, and, and again, that couldn't, that could have been really dangerous or that were it not for the fact that they got on so well. Right, so exactly that, that history was very important that they yeah. had together. Um, one thing you mentioned in your comment was about how sort of amongst popular opinion in the UK, there were people who you know, strongly supported uh, Margaret Thatcher and those who really didn't support her policies. Um, I was trying to think in terms of that weight of popular opinion, can you think of any examples of policies where Margaret Thatcher was on the wrong side of popular opinion, but you, but ultimately she was right, or vice versa, where she was wrong? Um, uh, she she was on the wrong side, I think, in the very important one which contributed to her um, fall, which was the poll tax. Uh, it was a, a, a new local government tax. Uh, uh, which she introduced, which was designed to be fairer because it was supposed to relate more to each person instead of to the prop property values, which had been the is thing before. But it turned out to be to bring out, I think, eight million more people into the tax net and um, to um, charge them a lot more for highly complicated reasons. Um, so very badly mishandled. And of course, if you haven't paid a tax before and then you're invited to pay one, you tend not to like it, you know, funny, funnily enough. And, um, and she got that wrong and her normal sense for pop, what the public would take, which was normally very good instinct, failed. And she insisted on pushing this through and pushing it through and it was badly administered and all sorts of problems. And public, um, and she wouldn't back off and public 
uh, anger rose. And that was the single biggest domestic issue. Um, I think she was right. And of course here, public opinion would have been very divided. She would, they wouldn't have been all against her, but she was right to fight the extremely difficult miners' strike when a lot of people told her she shouldn't. In fact, I think it was essential that she fought it. She had to win against the communist miners' leader, Arthur Scargill, because he, was, he wasn't just saying, don't shut the pits, which a union leader is entitled to say. He was saying, I'm trying to overthrow the government. And this had happened more or less in the 1970s, and she could see it was a repeat, and she had to win it. She had to assert the point that the government, the elected government, is entitled to make these decisions um, about a nationalized industry and cannot be dictated to by a labor union. And um, it was a very, very bitter strike. It was horrible. It went on for nearly a year. Um, Arthur Scargill always refused to call a, call a ballot of his members. And so some miners went on mining throughout, um, which was extremely helpful to her. Uh, and she won. And she won by a combination of good preparation and uh, a good reform of the laws um, and um, uh, just being having the courage to do it. And um, a lot of people told her that she shouldn't do it because it was confrontational. And I think that was an example of her determination um, winning a, a really necessary victory. Right. Um, do you think there was a, ele a gender element in that uh, pushback that Arthur Scargill gave? And maybe this is more of a personal reflection, but thinking that it would be even harder for him to lose with a female uh, Yes, I think she benefited. I think she benefited from being underestimated, and part of the fact in which she was underestimated, particularly in the early years, was that she was a woman. That's why the, iron, the Russians called her the Iron Lady because they thought it was an obviously funny thing to say that a lady could be iron. You know, of course, ladies are weak; right. men are iron in their minds, and um, and of course, she understood completely. You, ladies can be iron, and she was, and um, and she could to use that to her advantage. And um, there was a sort of patronizing element in much of the um, attack on her and a feeling that she, you know, she would have to bend. Um, and actually she did prove herself stronger than male leaders. And I think the reason for that partly goes back to the club point I made earlier. She, one of her things she often said privately was there's no, there's no second chance for a woman. And she believed that men in the club as it were in politics would always be given a second chance even if they failed. Um, women wouldn't and therefore she mustn't fail. It was very binary in her mind. So building on that and actually stealing a bit of a question from uh, Tony Pelling who's I believe in the audience today, uh, do you think it took her a while to learn those leadership skills? So she seemed to get on well with uh, maybe junior staff and often in interactions uh, in public meetings, uh, but less well with her cabinet and senior members of the party. Do you think that took her some time? Well, I'd actually say, I would say that she was good at it in her early and middle period and bad at it towards the end. Um, because when she was rising, she knew that she had to bite her lip and sort of be more diplomatic. But when she'd won and won and won, she got more... Um, detached from the need to be nice to colleagues. Um, she was in certain respects a very, very good leader indeed, but there were some respects in which she was not a good leader. And I think 
perhaps the most important of them was that she was very rude to senior colleagues because she was very nervous as the only woman and very jealous of her position. And she couldn't laugh anything off. She couldn't sort of, she couldn't relax. So she had to be the best at everything. And she had to understand every subject and she had to lecture colleagues in front. She didn't really understand male amour propre. So she would tend to tick off lecture colleagues in front of other colleagues, um, which of course is, they hated. And, um, and so in the end, they couldn't stand it anymore. I'm talking about senior colleagues here. She was, as you say, very, very nice to junior staff, extreme, exceptionally nice. Um, and um, in that sense, she wasn't collegiate, a le collegiate type of leader. She was a very leading type of leader. And um, this over time made people exasperated. And of course, time matters a great deal in politics because people want their day in the sun. They want to, um, succeed her and you know nobody was more annoyed to win the 1987 election her third general election victory than her fellow conservative <laughs> colleagues because how were they going to get rid of her if she um if she was if she kept winning and um and so when they did finally did get rid of her, rid of her they didn't wait till what would have been the election in probably 1991 or 92 they did a sort of coup against her in 1990 Coming back to the failure in the poll tax, uh, was there any sense that she was maybe not being given the best advice? So it sounds like a very tense time when uh, you know other people were jockeying for power that maybe yes. she didn't have that support. Um, yes, but I don't. I don't think she, we can give her that excuse because the poll tax was very carefully iterated through the system. So. Actually, all the ministers, except for the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson, who warned against it, um, all the senior ministers had dipped their fingers in the blood. They'd all agreed that it was a good thing to do. And, um, and they'd done it in actually, for her, quite a collegiate way. And there'd been a lot of policy work done on it. it. It was done and done and done and done and worked through and worked through. It just was misconceived and badly executed. And the blame there lies with everybody, but obviously it, it must, you know, the buck stops at the top. Right. Well, I guess thinking of another policy that uh, really wasn't a failure till after she was no longer in power, but uh, br taking Britain into the exchange rate mechanism, that was something she'd resisted uh, for quite some time. Do you think that was a full an error towards the end? No. Uh, well, yes, I think I think she made a mistake to give in. And the reason she gave in and, and agreed to entry was that she had become politically very weak by then. All this happened only about six weeks before she fell from office. And um, uh, she, um, because she was against the exchange rate mechanism, it has many technical aspects, but the fundamental point about it was that it was linking um, the British pound to the other European currencies. And the fundamental political point about it was that it was intended as a forerunner to the single European currency, which uh, became the euro and uh, which was created later and she was against this both for economic reasons and for political ones and she fundamentally her fundamental underlying position on all of this was if you sacrifice the pound and you have this new european currency you will have a one-size-fits-all currency which won't work economically and she was proved right about that the great disparity between greece and germany let's say both within the same currency um, and you think you're controlling German power because you are taking away the Deutschmark. 
you're not. You're increasing German power because you're making a German-shaped single currency. Um, and therefore, it has the overriding economic power in the European Union. It was not then called the European Union, but the community it was then called, but the same thing. Um, and she was completely right about that too, I think. And, um, uh, and Britain is very lucky that we didn't join, um, that we fell out of the ERM and we, did not, and we decided not to join um, the single currency because we would have been trapped in all of that, both politically and economically. And she saw that much more clearly, very interesting conversation she had with President Mitterrand of France about this just before she fell, private conversation. She said, you think you're containing Germany doing this, you're not, you're, you're giving it, you're, you're surrendering power to it. And I, I think that is, that's right. And I think it raised all sorts of issues of sovereignty and the need for um, the free movement of exchange rates and um, all sorts of really important issues, which uh, on the whole, she's been proved right in the subsequent years. Right. No, I think that's, do you think it sets some of the seeds, just even the attempt for where we are today with Brexit or? Yes, yes it did. Because while she was in office, she was never in favor of Britain leaving the European community. She was becoming increasingly worried about it. And after she left office, she came to the view that we should actually leave. Um, she never expressed this publicly because advisors said, this is too controversial, it'll split the party. You're too old to get into this one sort of thing. Um, and she obeyed that, but she didn't want to obey it. And she said it constantly privately from about 19, I would say 1991 uh, till her death, um, that we should leave. And she also argued it in terms of a referendum. She said there should be a referendum on this. The precise nature of the question varied a bit as, as things developed, but it was essentially on this point about first of all, the single currency and then Europe more generally. So she gave birth, not gave birth, but she increased the skepticism and she very strongly was the first person to promote the idea of a referendum on this, which we hadn't had since 1975. And the referendum she did promote publicly. And so she was the mother of a great deal of this. Um, and I don't think Brexit pro probably would not, it probably wouldn't have happened without her. Interesting. Well, I'm gonna keep the conversation going, but I'm gonna pause just for a moment to say, uh, we have, just under 15 minutes left. I do have some questions that audience members have sent in ahead of time, but if anyone has an additional question, there is a chat room within Zoom that I believe you should be able to post additional questions. Um, but I'm gonna turn to one uh, question that a couple of people asked about the representation of Margaret Thatcher on the screen. Uh, so she's been presented very recently in The Crown, the Netflix drama, and back in 2011, the film, The Iron Lady, uh, as well as my personal favorite, The Long Walk to Finchley. Mm. Uh, so I just wondered how well do you think screenwriters have done in presenting? Um, the Long Walk to Finchley, which is not well known, is, you're quite right, is extremely good. That's about her start in politics. It's, it's very well done. Um, Meryl Streep, um, is brilliant at doing spookily, which was absolutely spookily good at doing Lady Thatcher in old age when her her mind was declining. And as a portrait, excuse me, as a portrait of that, that was very, very good. The politics of the film are rubbish and they don't tell you anything um, about um, what was really going on. 
And I think it was unkind to make a film about Lady Thatcher's dementia when she was still alive. Um, actually very unkind, but I think it was well portrayed. Um, in The Crown, um, Gillian Anderson does one thing very well, which is to convey Mrs. Thatcher's intense sense of purpose and her determination to do what she wanted to do, come what may, rising in a society which was, whose hierarchy didn't really like her. That, that's, that's well done. But in other respects, the whole thing is a sort of tremendous misrepresentation of Mrs. Thatcher politically. Um, it's very negative about her in that respect. And it also doesn't convey something which is slightly harder to, slightly surprising for people, but it's very true, which is that there was something very sort of fun and exciting about the character of Mrs. Thatcher. Um, because she was so serious, somehow the, the, the things slow down when she comes onto the film in, in The Crown. It wasn't like that. They speeded up when she came into the room in real life because she was so full of energy, sort of electricity and charisma. Um, and of course, the other thing is, it's completely wrong portrayal of the relationship between Mrs. Thatcher and the Queen. Um, what these people all love to do, there's lots of films about this, they love the idea that Mrs. Thatcher lectured the Queen and told her what to do and all this type of thing and, um, and had arguments with her. Absolute rubbish. I mean, the problem was, in fact, the other way round. I don't mean that the Queen lectured Mrs. Thatcher. I mean that Mrs. Thatcher was too deferential to the Queen. The Queen actually rather likes it if her prime ministers can be quite jokey and relaxed. I mean, in a respectful way, but you know what I mean. And they couldn't quite get on that wavelength um, because Mrs. Thatcher, coming from a lower middle class background, the daughter of a grocer, and of course, being a woman of much the same age, almost exactly the same age as the Queen, there was always this problem of how do I present myself before my sovereign? I don't want to upstage her. I want to dress very well when I'm with her, but I mustn't dress smarter than her. I must curtsy to her properly and so on, all these things. They, these worried her very much. And as a result, her encounters could be rather stiff and um, it wasn't a very easy exchange of opinions. There also was a disagreement about sanctions on South Africa. The point there being that um, on uh, apartheid South Africa, which Mrs. Thatcher opposed because she didn't want the collapse of South Africa. She wanted a peaceful transition to majority rule. What worried the Queen was that as head of the Commonwealth, because all the Commonwealth was pushing for sanctions and Britain was against them. And the Queen was very worried that this would split the Commonwealth. And there was a serious disagreement between the Queen and Mrs. Thatcher, I mean, a polite one, respectful one, but there was one. Um, and that was quite important. However, the final thing I'd say about them is that the respect was very deep on both sides. And the way you can tell that is three individual things. First, that Mrs. as when she resigned, the Queen offered Mrs. Thatcher the Order of Merit on the spot, which is one of the two highest honours you can give. And it's her, in her personal gift. The second is that she came to Mrs. Thatcher's 70th and 80th birthday parties, which the Queen would never normally do for a retired prime minister. And the third and most important is that of all her, I think she's had something like 16 prime ministers now, um, only twos, she has attended the funeral of only two, Winston Churchill and Margaret Thatcher. And there's a reason for that. And um, that was a sort of key sign of the esteem in which uh, the Queen held her. That's interesting. I read that even in back in the late 50s that she considered the Queen a sort of role model in terms of how to be 
a successful. Yes, you did write. You wrote an article about that as a young, um, as a young aspiring political candidate when the Queen came to the throne in 1952. Yeah, you're right. Never um, happened before. It never happened before, of course, that the two most important, you know, the head of state and the head of government were both women. Strange and un historically very strange situation. Yes. No. Uh, important. Well, I, I think one other audience question we have is about how, and given we're here at the Leadership Institute, how you think the legacy of uh, Lady Thatcher will be as a leader? Yeah. Well, I think um, she looks like an old fashioned figure now, but really she was a very modern one because she absolutely mastered the forms of communication of the time. So she was the most brilliant expo exponent of her policies on air and also by how to present yourself. Everything that she wore particularly and carried, particularly her handbag, she used at, as a weapon in communication. So she'd dive into the handbag to pull something out, thereby illustrating woman power yet again, because the men didn't have handbags. Um, and um, that type of always symbolizing what she's on about and being able to talk about it very directly, straight to people, very, very important. So was her decisiveness. Um, so was her sense of mission. You know, nobody said, what's the point of Margaret Thatcher? What's she trying to do? She told you the whole time, I mean, to the extent of driving you mad with repetition, but it would, she, it would come through all the time. Sense of purpose all the time, right the way through. And speaking her mind, which people are now seem more frightened of as leaders, all, all that was very powerful. And I think also the, the female example, the way, um, and I find when I speak all over the world about Margaret Thatcher, that young women, this is what, is what interests them the most, is how did she do it? And how did she get through all of this? And how did she add this new dimension to leadership? And the final thing I would say about it is that she's a great preacher. She, there was a, a hot gospel element to her. Um, and you know, her father was a Methodist um, lay reader and uh, uh, um, I think they call it lay preacher. And, um, and she uh, was herself a serious Christian and she wasn't going around preaching um, Christianity. I mean, she's a politician, not a, not a minister, but, um, but she had great moral seriousness and she was very good at distinguishing what mattered from what didn't. And she wanted the world to know about that. So she was always, her favorite book in the New Testament was the Acts of the Apostles. And it was always, always preaching in season and out of season. You said uh, one thing about her dressing with the Queen. Um, it seems that's something that really came out of uh, your books. And I was very interested in that tension between her absolute love of clothing and fashion, but also having come from this relatively austere background. Um, is that something she sort of grappled with? Yes. She very much had the values with which she was brought up. But like a lot of great people from a provincial background, she longed to get away from it um, and get into the big world. And she, though she was a very serious and respectable person, she loved glamour, particularly in relation to clothes. But what stayed with her from her childhood, because her mother was a very good seamstress, was a sense of economy and of quality in clothing. So she knew how to alter her clothes and to 
sew them so that they were better or that they could be you could use another bit of them or forgive me i'm not using the correct terms but you know what I mean. and um uh, and so she knew very interested in those details of shoes bags clothes um and she knew how to make the best of a small budget so in a funny way she was both this international almost fashion star particularly by the end but she was also always the the semstress's daughter and the grocer's daughter as well it's a fascinating mixture that's um when she traveled in the united states in old age president reagan you see had asked her to give um the speech no no foreigner had ever been asked to do this before the eulogy at his funeral and of course that was a great honor for her and whenever she traveled in the united states before his death she always carried with her wherever she went black clothes in case he died when she was traveling in the United States. Fascinating sort of attention to detail on that type of thing. And so she had a very nice black outfit and hat and everything, should this sad thing happen, which in, indeed it did. And you may remember that when it, when it happened, she, her health was poor, both mentally and physically by then. And she knew it was declining. And so she had recorded her speech in honor of President Reagan in London, in case she couldn't deliver it in person. When, it, when he died, she was well enough to come to the National Cathedral for it, but not well enough to deliver it. So you had this extraordinary sight of her there in the cathedral. And actually, she flew across the United States afterwards for the internment as well in Air Force One. Um, but she was in the cathedral watching herself on the screen, making the eulogy she delivered in London. Rather moving, actually, because she made this tremendous effort because of her respect and affection for the president to both to come and to fly across for the interment. And she really wasn't well, um, but uh, it all sort of showed how much she, how much effort she put into things she cared about. Right, and how important their relationship yeah. had been. Yeah. Yeah. I do have uh, one question that came in. Uh, this, not sure if you can address this fully, but uh, how might you compare Margaret Thatcher as a strong leader to other strong female leaders, such as uh, Indira Gandhi and Golda Meir, do you have a sense of how she might be compared? Um, I, I think I don't really know enough about Mrs. Meir to be very confident about that. Um, and the Israeli system is very different. I think when you're leading us, I mean, goodness knows Israel is an important country, but it's a small, much smaller country. And I think they're the sort of, therefore the leader doesn't need, or didn't certainly then need that sort of superstar element that was very important in Mrs. Thatcher. Um, Mrs. Gandhi, there were comparisons, and in fact, they used to enjoy talking to one another, and I think they used to get to, together a bit to complain and worry about their children. <laughs> um, uh, but, um, of course, Mrs. Gandhi was more of a, it'd be unfair to call her a dictator, but she did do some pretty bad things about, you know, grabbing power. And there is, India is certainly a democracy. There were some, when she had the state of emergency and things, it was all pretty different. And, um, Mrs. Thatcher couldn't go down any of that route, but they were friendly and they did, um, they did discuss things a lot. But I don't think, certainly I don't think any previous women leaders were role models for Mrs. Thatcher, unless it be Queen Elizabeth I, uh, who, um, who she was rather keen on. That's funny. Um, I think maybe in just our last a minute, what is your fondest memory of your, of working on this project? I mean, if you, I know you said a lot at the beginning, but there is there a moment that sticks with you that um, we haven't touched on? 
well, uh, there isn't a single moment, but um, uh, I do love that what happened with, that I told you about with our son, because uh, it was so absolutely characteristic. But the other thing perhaps I should mention as, as a general thing that I really loved was her attitude of her husband, Dennis. Um, he was a very different personality, much more humorous, much more sort of um, easygoing, very funny, um, loved to drink, loved to smoke, um, and very, very loyal. And um, uh, he would always be the one who sort of punctured things and um, got her back to reality. And I just loved the way he did that. So for example, she was a nightmare writing her speech every year for the party conference. It made her very nervous and she'd go over it and over it and over it and over it. And for hours and hours until sort of four o'clock in the morning the day before. And Dennis was the only one he could stop this. And he'd come in and he'd say something like, come on, love, we're not writing the bloody Bible. And, um, and then she would meekly obey him and go up to bed. And it was that, I found that all that very touching. And uh, it sort of humanized her. And I think her life became very difficult when he died. He died about 10 years before she did. I think that uh, you've given us a wonderful picture of her whole life. So I really want to thank you. Uh, Lord Moore for your time today uh, and thank you to the audience um, uh, for participating and listening. I'm going to hand over to Dan. Thank you Lord Moore and thank you Dr. Tyner. What a wonderful conversation. So cheers to you and thanks to our uh, participants for being here today. Uh, be sure to check out the Jepson and Alumni Relations Facebook and Instagram accounts and the Alumni Affairs website for upcoming events. That concludes our program for today. On behalf of my colleague, Terry Price and the staff at the Jepson School and Alumni Relations, we wish everyone a good day.